Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Okay, hey everyone, this is Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team with another installment of our Energy Transition Podcast, where we're currently focused on small modular and advanced reactors. I'm delighted to be joined today by Maria Korsnick, who's the CEO of the Nuclear Energy Institute, or NEI as most will refer to them. NEI is based in Washington, D.C. and represents the industry in an effort to promote the use and growth of nuclear energy, particularly when it comes to policy and regulatory matters, both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, so, Maria, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, let's start with a bit about your background, uh, what brought you to NEI, and, and what's the overall mission of the organization? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate uh, your your interest in engaging on nuclear. So I've been in the nuclear industry for over 35 years. I'm a nuclear engineer by education, spent most of my career in power plants, operating nuclear plants from an engineer to an operator, ultimately to uh, different levels of management, leading to the chief nuclear officer, uh, where I was responsible for five reactors at three locations. And I did that for five years. And my desire to come to NEI was really one of the industry operates the plants very well. Uh, even today, the U.S. fleet has a greater than 90% capacity factor and has had greater than 90% for over two decades. And my challenge was, I don't think people sufficiently understand and appreciate nuclear power. So I can continue to work at power plants and, and enjoy that work. I enjoyed it very much. But I wanted to translate that work that I understood and have, have spent my career doing with policymakers and with regulators and with the public to really just better recognize and sort of understand the, the true value of our commercial nuclear fleet. And that's what brought me to NEI. Okay, great. And maybe what, what would you say is kind of the, the stated mission? You know, I, I guess I alluded to a little bit in the preamble there, but just, you know, how would you describe it in a in an elevator pitch. Yeah, really. Um, actually, you were right on target. It's uh, to promote the use and growth of nuclear energy through efficient operations and effective policy. And we do that on behalf of all of our members. We have over 300 members uh, of NEI, and that includes the whole value chain uh, from universities to supply chain, uh, to utilities, uh, to new reactor developers, legal firms, insurance firms. And so, you know, really getting sort of that full full value cut uh, for the industry. Yeah, and that, I mean, you, you sit at a really interesting cross-section of all of those stakeholders. So it's going to be interesting to, to have this, this conversation. I guess, as far as priorities go, and so I'm sure there's always things that are that you're working on or the top couple, three priorities at the time for, for the organization. Where do you think those are right now? And and how might that be different, if at all, from what it, where it was a couple of years ago? I'm just curious if there's been any change in how things are prioritized. Sure. I would say maybe just a couple of top priorities uh, off my head. The first one would be to get the recognition of the nuclear carbon-free energy in the electricity market. And we can talk a little bit more in your podcast because there's a lot that has happened recently to do that. But that's been a very significant priority for us. And I think uh, the next priority is really to 
put nuclear in a bit of a new light. So think about new customers, new applications, new technologies. And I think the third one would be international, uh, that we want to bring U.S. technology to the international market. Okay, super. You've been doing a lot of traveling lately. I mean, you do a lot of traveling all the time, right? But just lately, there've been a couple conferences. We were at sure. the the conference in Pittsburgh together. Uh, you were in Vienna, I think, for uh, for IAEA. Just what are the biggest takeaways from from those events? You know, the the kind of bleeding edge discussion that's happening out there. Um, what, what what are you coming back with? Well, you know, just the conversation around nuclear is is really changing. I don't think it's you know sort of too small to literally say it's a sea change uh, in terms of the recognition and appreciation for nuclear, even over just the last few years. And you mentioned a couple of conferences accurately that we were just at, and I just came back from Vienna, as you said. So let's just, you know, pick Vienna as an example. One of the things that we do on the sidelines of the uh, general conference, which is what uh, brought us to Vienna, is we hold bilateral meetings uh, with other countries. So it's a U.S. delegation, and it was led by Monica Gorman. Uh, she's currently in the White House on the Economic Council. Most recently, she came from Commerce, which is um, the reason that she led this delegation. But you had Secretary Granholm. Uh, you had Ambassador Holgate. Uh, you had uh, uh, Bonnie Jenkins. You had Joe Ruby. Uh, you had the head of our Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Christopher Hansen. And so, you know, a real sort of, I'll just say, you know, show of force, if you will, in terms of the U.S. government and its understanding and recognition uh, of nuclear. And we were meeting with other countries. And, you know, probably five or six years ago, yep, there would be, you know, a couple of countries. I mean, this time we had, I think, three days uh, of meetings uh, with other countries, Ghana, Kenya, uh, Poland, um, we met with Finland, um, the United Kingdom, just trying to recall just off the top of my head, Japan. And so the dance card is just sort of really filled up in terms of interest and engagement in, in terms of the, you know, sort of what's the U.S. Uh, doing with nuclear and then what does the U.S. have to offer uh, to other countries um, in, in, in around the world. And so just time and time again, just to appreciate the, the sort of the volume, if you will, of the nuclear conversation, you know, it's definitely being turned up and it's being turned up because people are really interested in understanding a solid game plan for how do we mitigate these effects of climate change? And then just how do we ensure that we have highly reliable, affordable, electricity going forward. And, and from whichever direction you come, nuclear is the answer. I think it's pretty widely accepted that a lot of the renewed interest in nuclear has come from the events that transpired in Europe where you know, there's a renewed focus on um, energy reliability and, and energy security, You know, both of which that are uh, addressed quite well by nuclear. But how much do you think the the increased interest is also coming from just progress on the small modular and advanced reactor side where, you know, now with these designs, you can only need to develop a 300 megawatt project versus like a gigawatt plus type project. Previously, uh, you can have it in six years, which is a pretty short timeline in, in nuclear terms, and you've got pretty good certainty on your costs. Like those are pretty attractive developments. I'm curious how much you think that has driven the interest versus the reliability and security points that I made earlier. 
Yeah. And I think it's both really. And so the energy crisis, I think, has really brought a lot of people's attention to energy security matters. Um, who you get your energy from matters, who you do business with matters. Um, and so I think that's really crystallized uh, a lot of thinking. And in addition uh, to the points that you're making, nuclear just used to be big, right? And we were these gigawatt sized plants and sort of off on some uh, you know, site that you sort of were aware that energy was produced over there, but you know, just sort of at, at arm's length, perhaps, let's say. And with these innovations that we're talking about that you mentioned, SMRs, there's also micro reactors, all of a sudden nuclear has sort of more tools in the toolkit. You know, yeah, there's the large ones and that's interesting and I think will still be, uh, be helpful and useful to many that want that sort of large gigawatt size reactor. But now you have sort of all those in between, you know, if you want the midsize or if you want the really small. So whereas before I think nuclear was a bit dismissed uh, in some cases because, well, let's pick Africa, you know, they don't even in some places in Africa don't have a mature enough electric grid that if your answer was nuclear, like, how do you even use that, right? But now all of a sudden, nuclear can be an answer. And so I think as you bring these other um, opportunities to the market, these other innovations, it's just cast a new light on nuclear, where it wasn't potentially an answer, and now it is, and a very reliable answer. And the more you look into it, not only is it more reliable, but it creates a more affordable energy. Well, that makes a lot of uh, difference because, as you know, the economics of energy really drive the economy, right? And so if the challenge is that we're going to decarbonize, well, we have to figure out how to do that the right way and an affordable way. Yeah, with, without a doubt. Sticking on the, on the kind of conference theme, so COP27 is maybe the next big one on the horizon. Well, I mean, there's going to be the the event in DC, um, and you can talk about that. But with COP27 on the horizon, what would you say would define success there? Like, what, what, are, what are we going to come away from there and say, that was something that happened there that that we feel like it was a success. And, you know, if that doesn't happen, it's not necessarily a failure, but it, it, we just really were bummed out that that didn't happen at COP27. You know, when I was at COP26 in Scotland, and I'll be going to COP27 uh, in, in Egypt. And, and so I guess a bit of it, I would say, when you say what's best, you know, I look at it not only for that meeting, but also sort of the trend, you know, sort of how, how have things changed. And, you know, I would say as you look over the last, you know, three or four years, even nuclear was a bit to the sidelines. COP was a little bit more uh, embracing to renewables, and that was sort of more of the prime uh, conversation. And so one of the things I look to for success is, well, how's that nuclear conversation going? Is nuclear more uh, prevalent and more relevant in conversations? Because, you know, COP is bringing together people that are knowledgeable, right, on the climate and what it's going to take. And so that is the place that if you're really serious about climate, that you should be having a conversation that includes nuclear. And so that's one of my ways of judging, you know, is nuclear still on the outside or is it sort of working more into the mainstream conversation? I mean, a small example, um, we were last year and we had a small booth uh, about nuclear, but there was many, many uh, different uh, technologies and, and, and different um, countries that had sort of, you know, larger pavilions, let's say, for whatever it is that they were talking about. Well, this year, uh, nuclear, and we're working with the IAEA, 
we're teaming together with the IAEA to have a pavilion at COP. So that's just one small example of sort of nuclear establishing itself, rightly so, sort of, you know, out there amongst sort of other, you know, others and, and not sort of, you know, off to the side. So I think that's I think that's a big part of it. Nuclear should be in the main conversation. Maybe you want to mention this event in DC. So we've yeah. got the ministerial coming up and and NEI is hosting a financing summit um, around right. that. Just maybe talk about what happens at that event in DC and then like why there's a financing summit happening alongside it. What's what's the the expectation and the goal uh, with that with hosting that event? Yeah, thanks for mentioning. Well, first let's start with what the event is and it's called the Nuclear Power Ministerial. So it's an international event, IAEA Ministerial. This event happens every four years, but it's never been in the United States before. So I think it's very significant uh, that it is in fact in the United States this year, but it's an international event. So you're gonna get energy ministers from around the world attending this event. And we expect uh, very high attendance. And uh, like in any sort of IAEA events, there's going to be sort of a main stage uh, where there's going to be, you know, obvious conversations with government officials and different um, uh, different uh, countries uh, represented. And there's also some significant events that are happening on the side. Uh, and so we're going to be hosting um, some of those events and the event that you mentioned that we created is a financing summit. So this is going to happen the day before, which is a, the 25th of October is the financing summit. And the ministerial is the 26th through the 28th of October uh, here in DC. And the idea that we had on bringing this um, financial summit uh, together was really one of that nexus of, hey, listen, we have all these international folks showing up for the ministerial and as I mentioned earlier, one of our priorities is in fact getting that US technology and that recognition that the US can play a strategic role around the world. Well, let's bring those two ideas together. So we're gonna have representatives globally. Um, in fact, some on our uh, summit, Rafael Grossi, who's the director general of the IAEA, uh, he'll be making some remarks and then facilitating a panel that includes other energy ministers as an example but we'll invite uh, many folks from the uh, financial community. And so it's gonna be a mixture of what's going on. So new providers of technology, new developers, sort of talking about SMRs and micro reactors, uh, as well as sort of having that international influence. And uh, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, we're working with uh, Guggenheim. Uh, we're working also with JP Morgan as we pull this event together. Really looking forward to to go into that. I want to shift the conversation over to talk about perception a little bit um, because there's, you know, a few categories of perception that that nuclear deals with. There's the public perception, which, you know, we, we're going to talk about. And then there's also sort of the private market or investor perception that's out there. And when I think about the public perception, you know, there's maybe some misconceptions among the public about the issues around safety and waste. Uh, but then there's maybe some other more legitimate concerns around construction timelines and cost. And that's when it kind of comes into the, the discussion around how investors think about this stuff. But what do you see as the biggest hurdles that need to be overcome around perception? And you know how's that scorecard looking over the past couple of years? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. In terms of public perception, I would say one thing that we have routinely seen is that people that are around current operating nuclear plants 
have a high level of favorability about nuclear and, and the nuclear plant. And so what that tells you is that folks that understand it or have people that work at the plant and sort of understand uh, what's going on there are left with a favorable impression. I think that's very positive in general for nuclear to say if you get closer to it and if you understand it, that there is you know, a higher favorability for nuclear power. And I think that's something to be built on. You know, you mentioned uh, safety and, and waste. We don't really hear so much about, about safety anymore. I'll be honest, I, I think people appreciate that you know, everybody uh, is invested in uh, the safety of, of operating these plants. So that isn't, uh, I don't hear that as so much a concern. Uh, you do hear about waste in terms of you know, the, the challenge around, well, geez, it's out there and, and you know, sort of what are we doing with it? But there again, uh, what I find is when you explain it, and we talk about the fact that, you know, after 50 years of operation, you can take all of the nuclear waste that's been created and it fits in a Walmart store. You know, there's just a different appreciation for the volume of that waste. And yes, it's something that needs a long-term solution. And yes, uh, we're working with the government on, on, on pulling that together. But I, I think that also begins to sort of put the waste, you know, conversation a little bit in perspective. That is an ongoing conversation. I think legitimately about saying, can nuclear really be an answer? I think it does come down to cost and schedule. I think people want to have um, a better line of sight. Hey, if I sign up for that project, A, is it going to go full to build? Is it going to happen on schedule? Is it going to happen, you know, on budget? And honestly, you know, we have a, a reputation on that from a nuclear perspective that there's been challenges in the past. And, and I think that's a, a reputation that we have to really earn. We have to demonstrate and show that, in fact, uh, nuclear can be built on time and on schedule. And I'll point to other countries, South Korea, for example, the UAE uh, has recently, you know, completed a, a build and they're continuing out on final, um, their final unit. Um, but those have demonstrated on time and on schedule. So I think there is opportunity for the U.S. to demonstrate that we can do it too. Great. Uh, maybe just before we have a few more questions on perception, but just while we're kind of on the waste discussion, just how do you see this playing out? Like oh, the, the long-term solution for high-level waste, what does that ultimately look like, do you think? I think right now the waste that we have is safely stored where it is but it's spread out a bit, right? So it's at wherever the site is that it was uh, used in the reactor. So it's like 60 to 62 different sites. So it's very safe where it is, but it's not really efficient necessarily that we store it in that way. So I think the first step on waste is consolidating it. And that's what the Department of Energy uh, is working on right now, their pathway to a consolidated interim storage, uh, which is a consent-based process that they're following. I think that's going to take several years, uh, but I do think that we'll be able to land uh, into a consent-based siting process, which will, again, sort of pull this waste together instead of having it sort of sprinkled about to, to the number of sites that it is. Ultimately, we do need a long-term repository. Finland uh, just opened their long-term repository. Again, it's something they worked on for many years had a consent-based process, found a site that was suitable and have just pursued that and to the point now that they just recently opened it for business. And ultimately, we're going to need that as well. Now, this new conversation around advanced reactors, it also kind of changes the conversation a little bit around waste. And that's because 
now there's sort of a renewed interest in cycling and reprocessing. And, and so I think you're going to hear about that over the next few years. I don't think it removes the need for a long-term repository, but I do think it places the waste into a different context where it, it shows that it's not that it's necessarily waste, it's just not useful to the current reactors, but this waste is useful and can be used by other style of reactors and, and, and some other needs. I have a, a company that's a part of NEI that is just interested in some of the components that are in used fuel for their business. And they're, they're making probes. Some of these probes will go in outer space. Some of these probes will go very deep in the ocean, but they are using some of the components and the waste as part of their power supply. And so there again, I think people are going to begin to see, oh, it's not waste as in trash. It's just waste. It can't be used by the current reactors, but there are elements of this that are useful and useful to others. So I actually think the waste conversation is going to change a bit over the next five to 10 years. And, and I think that'll be helpful. I think it'll help us sort of dial it in to what is a potential from a, a reprocessing perspective and then you know, what is the appropriate sort of storage uh, process? Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe going back to the perception stuff a bit, the way, the way I categorize it, right? We've got all these legacy nuclear assets that are out there generating and, and running well, but then we've got all these small modular advanced reactors that are maybe the future of it. How aware would you say the public are of these new designs? I'm not sure the distinction from the public's perspective. In other words, in some to some of the public, I think sort of nuclear is nuclear. And so I'm not sure, you know, how much that it's going to matter. But I also want to share that this picture that you painted of the future, you know, I see all of this technology living and working together. So the current technology that we have, I think you're going to see uh, many license renewals. And so we have plants that, you know, operated now 40 years going to 60 years. Now we have designs that are going from 60 years to 80 years. Nothing magic about 80 could very well be that some of those designs will go 80 to 100 years. And so I think they bring, you know, sort of solid, reliable service and will continue to do so. And I think uh, we just recently um, pulled of our members and I think it was like over 90% had intended to go that license extension from 60 years to 80 years, as an example. We've had a few already do it, but I would just say the line uh, will quickly form. And so that's gonna happen in parallel with some of these new things, if you will, coming onto the market and being built. And so I, I think that's really our future. It's not so much, oh, oh, these old ones, these old ones are gonna shut down and go away and just sort of the new ones are gonna come up because these plants are built solid. I mean, these are, these are infrastructure type things. I don't know, think of the Hoover Dam or, or some of these things that you can just look at and say, wow, that's really stable. That's really solid. I mean, our plants are built like that and, and they're taken care of like that. You know, they're maintained. So I worked at a plant near Rochester, New York called the Ganae plant. And if I were to tour you in that plant today, we would walk around and I would describe it like this is a teenager. And this plant was put in operation in 1969. These plants are maintained extremely well. Components are replaced. 
there's a high degree of focus and attention placed on keeping these plants, you know, very well run. And so I don't want people to judge plants based on years of age. We should really judge these plants on how well that they've been cared for. And that's why, as I look to the future, I see these plants continuing to operate and uh, very safely operating. And in addition to have these new technologies come in, because these newer technologies, as you get smaller, what I actually see playing out for nuclear is nuclear becomes a bit more approachable. You're gonna start pairing, say a small modular reactor next to a supply facility. So maybe that's Dow Chemical because you want that small modular reactor, maybe not for the electricity, you might want it for the steam and you're using the steam in your process. So now you see more sort of nuclear being co-located with some of these um, facilities instead of just that large gigawatt size plant sort of off in the distance. Uh, same thing for micro reactors. You know, micro reactors are going to like end in more of the remote locations, but remote locations where they need energy and you're going to have the opportunity for this, almost think of it as a battery. It's almost like a nuclear battery. It, it's going to be able to run for 10, even 15 years without needing to be refueled. Yeah. And importantly, probably displacing diesel, which was, you know, the, Absolutely. the incumbent there. One final one on the, on the perception side, and it relates to the fuel cycle, you know, with, with the events in Russia and, and Europe, I think investors or people are, are concerned about the supply certainty of um, uranium and enriched and enriched fuel so much of it comes from russia and and from kazakhstan who could arguably said you know is maybe aligned with russia but just how do you see that playing out how much of a concern is that near term do we ultimately have you know go back to having our own self-sustaining supply of enriched fuel in the u.s just what happens there so it is a concern in that you know, Russia, with the unfortunate events that are playing out in Ukraine and our hearts go out to the Ukrainians, have really demonstrated that they're a bad actor. And, you know, I think anybody that's doing business with Russia is is taking a look and saying, really, do I still want to do business uh, with them? And whether that's building reactors or, or buying the fuel. And we're doing the same thing, right? And And we're looking at that. And if I would break the fuel into, you know, first you need the uranium, then you need to convert it and enrich it. The getting the uranium part, that's really available in several places around the world. And um, as you mentioned, Kazakhstan right now, a lot of countries purchase from them because low price. But there's there's other places. Canada has a lot of uh, uranium um, Australia, uh, just to name, you know, a couple of other allies. So it's not really the purchasing of the uranium, it's the conversion and enrichment. Uh, and it's those services uh, right now uh, that Russia uh, is providing. And so absolutely, we in the United States need to invest in our front end of our fuel supply. Uh, years ago, uh, we were a large percentage of the marketplace uh, for uh, conversion and enrichment, and we aren't today. And so that's something uh, that we're working uh, very deliberately on with our government, with our suppliers, because now is the great time to focus on that. We just talked about all of these potentials for SMRs and, and, and micro reactors. Well, now's the time to fix the front end of the fuel supply so that when we're into the 2030s, we're able to really scale up and get ready for a high production um, of many different uh, power plants. 
So I think the unfortunate case that's playing out in Ukraine actually is an opportunity to really crystallize our thinking around the fuel supply and we'll end up using that crisis as an opportunity to put this attention on the U.S. fuel supply and really improve our conversion and enrichment capabilities. Now, on the positive, we talked earlier about uh, the fuel cycle. And again, you load these plants for you know 18 months to two years worth of fuel. So when you say, is it immediate concern? You know, many of these plants are loaded now for, you know, 18 months, two years. So it's something that we have to address. It is very important that we have a continuous supply of fuel. And this is where our attention is right now. So there was 700 million in IRA for for HALU, which isn't the fuel that the the existing reactors use. But is there enough federal support to stand up enrichment, like LEU enrichment in the U.S.? What, 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 what's out there that could help and what more is maybe needed from, from in terms of government support? Yeah, we're actually looking for more government support and attention on the low enriched uranium. And so you mentioned the 700 million for the high assay LEU, and that's a part that's not enough either, um, but that's a good start as we look sort of broadly and holistically. And that's what our Department of Energy is doing. They're looking at the entire uh, fuel cycle, both low enriched and high assay LEU. And we're having those conversations uh, with folks on the Hill. And we're going to continue uh, to campaign for that. We were actually hopeful that we were able to get something um, in the continuing resolution. And now we'll be looking uh, forward to potentially other opportunities um, for this year. This is a strategic investment by our government uh, for the U.S. industry. And so we do very much want to make sure that it's clear how important, and it's not just for the U.S. If you think about it, we're talking about that international component of bringing U.S. technology to other countries. And those other countries are very, very interested. Well, it also needs to come with and I have some fuel supply for you, right? So it's not just us looking at US needs, it's us being relevant in the worldwide marketplace. And part of that conversation is fuel to run the technologies that have been invented. Great. I, I wanna switch over to talking about demand, demand outlooks and demand prospects. Public utilities are a portion of your, your members um, and I'm sure you, you talk to them all the time. I, I'm curious what, what you're hearing from them in terms of interest in signing up for some of these small and advanced reactor designs. One of the worries that I have following the, you know, these companies and looking at the timelines for their deployment is if I were going to buy or sign up to buy a reactor, like I'd like to see the, the first of a kind work and be in operation before I sign up. Like, how does that, how are those utility customers dealing with the chicken and egg there of you know, wanting to see proof of concept before signing up. Yeah, sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about the demand. As you mentioned, we represent the utilities and we had the chief nuclear officers and we asked them, hey, behind closed doors, what are you talking about within your company relative to nuclear going forward? We said we wouldn't share it by company, but we would just look at it in the aggregate. So what came back to us is they're interested in 90 gigawatts of power from nuclear between now and 2050. So just to put that in perspective, we have about 90 gigawatts today. So that's going to be essentially doubling the amount of nuclear capacity that we have in the United States. 
Now we talked before, we used to make these gigawatt size reactors. But if we're gonna do that with small modular reactors, just in round numbers, let's say 300 megawatts, you know, if you want 90 gigawatts, well, that's close to 300 small modular reactors, right? And so just to give people an idea of the volume. And, and so that's the feedback that we got from the chief nuclear officers. And, and we're actually looking at that to try to step back and say, okay, now that's just for electricity. And that's just people that are in the nuclear business today. Okay, so now you step back and say, okay, well, those people represent 40% of the marketplace today, people that own nuclear plants uh, in the electricity market. So essentially that's a sampling of 40% of the electric market. So it's only gonna go up from there if other people are interested. And that's just electricity. And now you have people that are interested in steam. That's what Dow Chemical, uh, their recent announcement wanting to pair, you know, with a uh, with a small modular reactor. So I would say 300 is kind of the low end, you know, if you really start looking at all of these other pieces uh, that are trying to come together. The demands, the pent up demand, let's say, is very large. And now we're just talking United States. I just talked earlier about all the different conferences that we're attending. This same level of interest is playing out in other countries. It's an amazing amount of potential demand. And so our challenge, I really don't think, is if we're going to build and when we're going to build. It's can we keep up with this level of demand? When do you think we start to get a lot of these announcements? Is it is this something in the next two to three years we could see you know, I mean, if there's 300 plants, how many of those would we hear about in the next two to three years? Just to, I, yeah, you know, invest, I, investors want to know like now, that's right. what's, <laughs> what's the So I like? do think you're going to start to see fingerprints. And if you're going to say, well, Maria, like, what do you mean? What What's a fingerprint, right? I think you're going to see construction permit go into the NRC. People that are going to say, I want my approval, you know, to construct this particular design. I think you're going to see site permits that people are saying, well, I'm not ready to build just yet, but I want to get this site or that site sort of cleared, if you will, and ready, uh, ready for a build. Um, and, you know, I think you're going to continue to see different technologies um, put their paperwork in, if you will, for approval of this, a, a new design or, or a new reactor. I think those are all absolutely going to happen over the next two to three years. Uh, again, I think with the kind of demand that we're talking about, you're also looking for a handoff. And what I mean by that is you got some companies out there that are making decisions to close coal plants. They've either announced broadly that they're gonna close them, or in some cases specifically, and they're naming their plants and they're naming what year they're gonna close those plants in. And I think they're looking for, now wait a minute, if I'm gonna close this coal plant, sort of then what? And we talked earlier about nuclear adding to a just transition. You close these coal plants, there are a lot of people that don't have jobs. And in some cases, whole communities have been formed just because the coal plant was there. That's definitely the case um, of the plant out in Wyoming, in Kemmerer, Wyoming, where the natrium plant's going to be built. And so, you know, the opportunity for this nuclear plant in the vicinity of where there was a coal plant well, gosh, you have all these jobs and there's a huge transfer of jobs between coal and nuclear. You know, we like to sort of, um, you know, make light of it a little bit to say, well, in nuclear, we boil the water a little different, you know, but once you turn that water into steam, it's a power plant, you know, just like it was a coal plant. 
So there's a very high degree of transferability. I'd say greater than 75% uh, of those coal jobs can transfer into nuclear jobs. So anyway, for lots, lots of reasons, you're looking at this demand um, and let's be smart about when I'm going to close this, I want to then in relatively quick succession be able to transfer those jobs to this new technology. So clearly there is, you know, a very, a very high degree of sort of pent up, uh, if you will, interest in nuclear. And sometimes they don't call it nuclear. You know, they'll say they want a carbon free, you know, load following resource, or they want some, you know, sort of round the clock carbon free you know, attribute for, you know, all kinds of different ways to just come out and say, well, nuclear answers that call. It's the only sort of largely scalable, you know, carbon-free source that we have today. You mentioned the the 90 gigawatt um, number that, that came from utility um, members. How much of that is what we were just talking about with the the replacement, right? Because DOE had this whole study about all these coal plants that could be repowered with nuclear. I mean, mm -hmm. how much of an overlap in the Venn diagram of opportunities there between the the 90 and the, I think it was 300 gigawatts of coal, if I remember correctly. That's right. I think there's a high degree of overlap. I think really what it says is maybe no one study is perfect, but what we're saying is it's definitely not four or five reactors. However you slice it, it's hundreds, okay? It's hundreds because again, we just asked the electric sector, you looked at that DOE report and I do think that came out like 300 gigawatts versus this 90 gigawatts. And so sort of however you slice and dice it, it it's a very, very large uh, volume that's needed. And when you go and step back again a minute, you know, when you start saying, oh, I need a high volume of electricity and I need it carbon free, that's why I have to look at that partnership between renewables. Wind and solar clearly have a part to play in all this, but when you start having these massive amounts of gigawatts that are needed, the volume of that build, the volume of that transmission, if you try to do it just with say wind and solar, it's really cost prohibitive. And that's why we really have to seriously take a look at what's the best way to do this and it is that partnership between a carbon-free backbone like nuclear energy and then add in, you know, the wind and solar where it makes sense and batteries where it makes sense. Um, but that right-sizes it for the customer. I want to shift gears a little bit on <clears throat> sort of the future of technology. So there's several small and advanced reactor designs out there. There's some high-profile ones that have won demonstration program money that we we know about, but, you know, there's dozen, it seems like, different designs out there in various stages of, of moving towards commerciality. How do you think this plays out? Do we, over the next 10 to 15 years, settle down into like a handful of, of designs that, that get built? Or do we go to one design? Or do we have, you know, 20 different designs, which kind of sounds like a number that's too high? I'm just curious how you see the market evolving. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, one thing I'll point out, between the United States and Canada right now, there's 20 pilot projects uh, that are underway that will show, you know, fruition or significant progress by the early 2030s. Just to give you an idea of volume, that's a lot. You know, it's really an opportunity, I would say, for investors right now. They're sort of in the catbird seat where you have sort of 20 different pilot projects that are that are playing out. It's going to give an opportunity to sort of watch and see understand the regulatory process, understand uh, 
the project management of it, the, the builds on time, on schedule uh, kind of thing. I don't imagine these pilot projects are going to be perfect, sort of each and every one. But that data point that they create, you know, it's going to be at the high end upon which you, it's only going to get better, right? The schedule's only going to get better. The cost should come down. So from an investor perspective, you're going to look at this and say, okay, look, this is, you know, sort of a bookend. And if I'm comfortable with that bookend, wow, it's only going to get better from there because they're going to get better at building and sort of more efficient at doing it. So I want to kind of get that out there that just to have an appreciation that there's sort of that many different uh, pilot projects that are underway, I think also is an example of just sort of how chock full this innovation pipeline is with all these things that are, that are going to be coming uh, to the marketplace. I do think it's going to be multiple designs. And I know on one hand, people are like, oh my gosh, could you guys just decide already and just come out with one or two and it makes a lot more sense. We'll focus on one or two, but I'm just going to go back to the demand. This demand is immense. And I would just tell you the pie is big enough. It is big enough for multiple designs. And also it's going to depend on what you want. Some people really aren't interested in the electricity. They want the high temperature steam. There's going to be some designs that that really makes sense for. There's some designs, when I say high temperature steam, we're talking like 600 degrees centigrade steam, right? That's, that's very high and that's higher than what uh, the plants uh, produce today. Okay, but if you're not interested in the high temperature steam, you know, the current technology that we have today, the light water technology, it's fine. And so because there's going to be different needs, your need might be hydrogen. Uh, you can produce hydrogen with the plants we have today. You might be able to produce it more efficiently with one of these that are going to be invented. So I think the need matters in terms of what your design feature is that you're interested in. And I think as a result of that, I think the multiple designs are going to make sense. And I think also it's going to give a chance, you know, for the marketplace, if you will, to sort of shake it out a little bit and say, well, this was designed for this niche. Is it working? We designed this for the steam, you know, and is, is, is that market maturing? Does that make sense? The other thing, I guess, just to appreciate with nuclear, you also don't have to pick, you know, you could make electricity during the day and hydrogen at night. You know, you could do high temperature steam during the day and electricity at night. And so I just think having sort of that flexibility uh, with this asset, I think it's going to be very interesting in terms of where people want to cite these and, and sort of how they want to use them. It's just really an amazing time right now for nuclear. Again, I reflect back on my career and there has never been a time with this level of sort of innovation and opportunity for nuclear, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Incredibly exciting, incredibly exciting time. And I, and I think that demand is going to be large enough for several designs to survive. Yep. Makes, makes sense. Um, especially as you think about the different applications, high heat versus, you know, power, whatever it might be. I want to talk about the IRA or Inflation Reduction Act. There was an investment tax credit in there that is pretty meaningful. Like if you can check all the boxes, you can get 50% of the cost of your plant covered in a credit, which, you know, to, to me seems like a game changer. It, it's not gotten a ton of attention. I'm just curious, you know, how, how you're thinking about that. Is, is there, are you guys scratching your heads as to why that, that hasn't got as much attention and, you know, what might it take for there to be more focus on it? 
I'd say where it matters, I think it is getting a lot of attention. So let's just talk about some of the numbers that we just quoted, you know, that 90 gigawatts and some of these other studies, you know, that the DOE had done, that's before the IRA. Okay, so if people were already starting to look at nuclear before something such as this 50% investment uh, tax credit that you talked about, can you only imagine what would happen after? So I think, again, what we are looking at before, I think, is the low end. And I think this uh, IRA, I think you're going to see the volume, again, increase uh, even more in terms of uh, an opportunity for nuclear. Companies can be a little bit shy when they're talking about nuclear. I'll be honest, the investment community is not always so favorable. When people talk about, maybe I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and build a nuclear plant. So I think what you're seeing right now is, is companies being really tentative about how much they want to talk about it. But I can tell you behind closed doors, I'm being asked to come to boards of directors and I'm being asked to come and present and create conversation. So I can tell just from my own schedule and my own uh, requests that are coming my way that there's a hunger and a thirst for people to understand what are the possibilities? When are they coming out? When can I know more? And I think they, they want to sort of build that level of confidence before you start talking about it. You know, I'll point to Virginia. I think the Virginia governor just came out recently and talked about a, a desire and a drive, uh, you know, for building SMRs in Virginia. And so, you know, when, when you're having governors really come out and saying, you know, hey, pick me, you know, I'm interested in it. Um, we're seeing that quite a bit. And, and what I mean by that is if, if 10 years ago, we would have had even 10 bills that had anything to do with nuclear power, working through state legislatures, I'd say that would have been a big deal. But today we have over 100 bills uh, that are working their way through uh, state legislatures that have some nexus to, to commercial nuclear. So, you know, there's so many ways that you can look at this to just say there's a, a thirst and a hunger and people are really wanting to understand and know more. They want to learn a little bit more about these designs, but they realize they need that reliability. They need it carbon free. They want the jobs. They want a just transition. And, you know, you put all that together and you come back and you say, well, that's your nuclear power plant. Yeah, I, I think the IRA is only going to up it. Now, you mentioned, you know, well, hey, how come we're not hearing so much about it? I would actually say that's a positive. And what I mean by that is for so long, people have gotten their own little personal tax credit. And we got a wind tax credit. and You got a this tax credit. You got that. And one of the things we've asked for is a technology neutral tax credit. Right? If you bring to the market the thing, in this case, it's carbon free, then you should be availed of the tax credit. And so it's not a nuclear investment tax credit. It's a carbon free tax credit. It's just that you're hearing more people talk about when they think carbon free, they think wind and solar, um, instead of when they think carbon free, thinking, you know, nuclear and hydro and wind and solar. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, you know, has a little bit more uh, education to come, but I actually take it as a compliment that we wanted it to be technology neutral and then demonstrate that nuclear contributes to it. We had Jigger Shaw on the, the you know, head of the one program's office for the DOE and their, their authorization was just increased pretty dramatically. And I, I'm curious how you see that office helping nuclear um, and the build out, you know, this 90 gigawatts and beyond, like just, just from your perspective, where do they fit in? Well, I think they're key um, I, in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, one of the things we talked about is, oh my gosh, if you're going to have this high demand, 
What do you need to do to get ready for that? One of the things you got to get ready for is the supply chain. And we have to figure out how to get that supply chain sort of up and ready, um, you know, sort of in advance of getting that, you know, 100 orders come in, you know, let's let's get that supply chain sort of stoked and, and going. So I think key role for the loan program office to help get uh, that supply chain uh, area sort of up and running. But just look at what's happening right now, right? There's inflation concerns, interest rates are rising. I mean, this is a key place for the loan program office to operate uh, where they can provide some low interest loans, um, you know, as, as sort of part of this. And it's even more critical when we're in an environment of, um, you know, of increasing interest and, and just when the cost of money goes up, it's hard when you're building things like this. Outside of what we know about from what's been passed, is there any legislation that's either, you know, being drafted right now that is really helpful um, or anything that maybe should be passed in the next two, three, four years that, that would really be a game changer that, that people should be, be looking into and thinking about? Well, uh, we're very interested in uh, the mansion Rich legislation. Um, this legislation has been uh, really focused on um, international uh, fronts and really helping our companies compete um, in the international marketplace. So I think that's a real key part of this whole equation. As we mentioned, not only is it important that we're looking at building here, but also exporting that, that U.S. technology. In fact, there was one assessment that said uh, the opportunity, it's like a $1.9 trillion opportunity for U.S. companies in the international market. So it's, it's a huge market. And uh, one of the things uh, that this legislation will provide will really um, assist in that. And, you know, you mentioned it already, but we have to get the fuel supply uh, in the United States figured out. We have to bring it home. We need to have U.S. technology and uh, we need to build it here uh, for both the low enriched uranium and the high assay LEU. And I think that's um, that's going to be key uh, to come across the legislation in the very near term. Right? Okay, great. Well, maybe just, you know, wrapping it up, investors are constantly wondering, what are the catalysts? What do I need to watch out for that's going to change the investment outlook here? So as you look out over the, the next 12 to 24 months, what do you think are the, the key announcements that will come from the industry to, to kind of give investors confidence that everything's on track with what we've been talking about here? So is it like portfolio announcements from the utilities? Uh, is it progress on, on NRC licensing? You know, I don't know, announcements about fuel supply. Like what are the, the couple of things that you think we could hear about in the next 12 to 24 months? I think you'll, you'll hear announcements on fuel supply. I think you'll hear announcements on uh, people putting in uh, construction per uh, for approval. I think, uh, again, you'll hear uh, people putting in site permits um, to get future build, but they want to get a site that they, uh, they have confidence in that they can put um, that nuclear plant. I think you're also going to see utilities come out and be a little bit more uh, direct about their nuclear plans. In fact, I just saw a headline uh, from Duke Energy that had talked about, you know, sort of their future for nuclear and future builds, and they included uh, SMRs in, in theirs. That's an example where, you know, before I, I think uh, they had talked about me needing a, a zero emission load following resource, uh, and now they're saying they need small modular reactors as part. You know, I'd say, I think Duke's, you know, sort of leading the way. I think you're going to see other utilities uh, likewise uh, come out and sort of give a head nod that as they look at their future planning, they're looking at uh, at including nuclear. You know, I also think you're going to hear 
uh, potentially some international announcements where in that international announcement, you'll see that they're selecting US technology. So uh, I think all of that uh, can play out over the next you know, 12 to 24 months. Super. Well, that's probably a good place to leave it. Maria Korsnick, CEO of NEI. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time and look forward to chatting again soon. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.